Today we're broadcasting a hearing hosted by the House Judiciary Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. The hearing takes place one year after the first Twitter Files report came out. Those reports exposed the federal government's influence over social media companies. Key witnesses include Twitter Files journalists Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger. Let's dive in. We will now begin uh, today's hearing with opening statements. Start with the chair. One of the most egregious forms of the weaponization that this subcommittee has worked to expose is the coercion of social media companies by the federal government. And we wouldn't know anything that we know today. We wouldn't have learned and had the reports we've had without the work of Matt Taibbi, Michael Schellenberger, Barry Weiss, and other journalists who wrote the Twitter files and first exposed the, uh, these efforts. Their important work was first made possible because of Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter and his commitment to free speech. The path for getting this information, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> the path for getting this information out has not been easy. Finding the truth never is. Instead, we were obstructed at almost every turn, and many of the people who sought to help us expose the censorship industrial complex, as Mr. Taibbi and Mr. Schellenberger have, I think, appropriately labeled it, have been targeted. On December 10th of 2022, after the first Twitter files came out, Mr. Musk tweeted that Twitter is, quote, that Twitter is both a social media company and a crime scene. Three days later, three days later, the Federal Trade Commission sent Elon Musk a letter demanding to know the identity of the Twitter files authors and inundated the company with harassing requests for information. Literally three days after, name four journalists by name. And while Twitter put this information out voluntarily, the other platforms were not as forthcoming. Instead, we had to subpoena them in February of this year, fought with them for months, had to threaten contempt before getting substantive information about government's efforts to censor the American people. And when we first had Mr. Taibbi and Mr. Schellenberger testify back in March, an IRS agent showed up at Matt Taibbi's door. I mean, think about this. I, I've told this story numerous times. And there's not one person I've told this story to, not one group I've spoken to, where I say, while they are testifying, while Mr. Taibbi is testifying in front of the committee about the weaponization of government, the IRS was actually, at that very moment, knocking on his door. And there's not one person who thinks that was just chance. That just happened to, you know, it was all a coincidence. Not one person, everyone understands that to be the intimidation from our federal government. Now, the good news is this led to a sweeping investigation of the IRS's home visits, and the best news is the IRS has said they will no longer be making unannounced visits to American citizens' homes. It's interesting that the commissioner actually said, the commissioner actually said, we are doing this to protect for the security of our agents. Baloney, they're doing it because we caught them. And we made an issue of it, and the American people understand that that is wrong. This subcommittee's work has also included putting out reports showing how CISA went from a cybersecurity agency into the disinformation police and how the FBI coordinated with a compromised Ukrainian intelligence agency, that actually happened, to censor Americans. We were also able to expose how the other platforms were pressured to change their behavior. Documents we obtained from Facebook show that the company felt threatened by the White House directly and changed its behavior for fear of retribution. And just this morning, we released information showing the same thing happened with YouTube. 
While we have more information forthcoming, it's impossible to get a full accounting of the government's censorship efforts when the government actors involved will not participate with our constitutional duty to do oversight. That's why today we are serving subpoenas to former White House employees Rob Flaherty and Andy Slavitt, who have so far refused to sit for interviews despite being directly implicated in emails between the White House and tech companies. I think we might have brought this out in the, in the previous hearing with um, some of our witnesses today. But never forget, the third day of the Biden administration, I think it was maybe may like 36 hours into it, Andy Slavitt sends an email from the White House to Twitter saying, take down this tweet ASAP. And of course, the irony was the tweet was about, the tweet was from this administration's Democrat primary opponent, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And there was nothing in the tweet that was false, and yet the White House, day three, the Biden administration is trying to take that down. So we've sent subpoenas to those two individuals and hope that we will have them in front of our committee real soon. I want to thank our witnesses for appearing before us today and helping us to continue our work in exposing government censorship, in exposing what two of our witnesses have called, as I said earlier, the censorship industrial complex, this marriage of big government, big tech, and as we found out with some of our work, big academia involved in attacking American citizens' First Amendment liberties. We appreciate you all being here. We will introduce you here in a, few, in, a, in, a, in a few minutes, but I now yield to the ranking member for an opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, first, may I ask unanimous consent that the gentlewoman from Pennsylvania, Ms. Dean, a member of the full committee, be permitted to sit on the dais. She's yeah. not going to ask any questions. Uh, without objection. Thank you very much. Um, good day to everyone. Every day, the American people share with members of Congress, social media friends, family, and anyone who will listen that they live largely in fear for their future. When I scroll through my social media feeds, I see people worried they don't have job opportunities or job security the generation before them had, worried they don't have time, resources, or support to take care of sick parents or disabled relatives, worried they won't be able to afford to buy a home to call their own, worried they will not be able to see their kids send their children to college or simply provide for their children the way they were provided for. I see Americans are concerned. I see parents concerned that schools are becoming unsafe for their children. I see Americans are concerned that rights are being taken away. Americans concerned that their vote might be discounted or may not even be able to cast a vote. In the discussion of the weaponization of the federal government, the majority has acknowledged the fact, in this discussion of the weaponization of government, I'm sorry, um, one of the things that I've requested that we look into is the IRS audits of working class people and people of color, which are far, far at a higher rate than millionaires and billionaires, or a discussion in a hearing of actions by the former President Donald Trump and what he has said he will do to weaponize our government if reelected. However, we're not having a hearing about those topics. We're not having discussions. Congress is not engaged in making any headway on those things that Americans are most concerned with. Today, we're having a hearing with witnesses on the Republican side, two of whom we've already heard from. In fact, this is the second hearing where Republicans have brought out repeat witnesses, the second hearing in a row. 
In preparation for the 2024 presidential election, Republicans on this, this committee want to entrench their theory of social media censorship, their unfounded accusation that social media companies are colluding with the government to censor conservative voices. There's no evidence of this collusion, and in fact, this committee has heard closed-door testimony from 29 witnesses who have said on the record, government as well as social media individuals, that the alleged collusion and supposed censorship claimed by the committee Republicans has not taken place. But Republicans won't release that testimony, and they are not being honest with the American people because as they ramp up their own misinformation campaign before the 2024 election, they need free reign to elevate hate, to engage in voter suppression online, in addition to their normal in-person voter suppression tactics. This hearing suits political purposes. Republicans are holding the same hearing all over again for one simple reason. They want to distract from the actual threat of the weaponization of government on the American people. That is Donald Trump. In the past few months, Trump has said that he would reinstate the Muslim travel ban. In fact, his exact words were, when I return to office, the travel ban is coming back even bigger than before and stronger than before. He has vowed to use the Department of Justice to investigate his political enemies. He has said that those who oppose him should be executed for treason. He has called his political opponents cockroaches, vermin, said that immigrants are poisoning American society. He has promised to use the Insurrection Act to mobilize the military against any protesters who speak out against him if he wins re-election. Those do not resonate as plans of a Democratic leader. They sound like a dictator. They promise to be one who will silence his enemies and hold on to power at any cost. As the first branch of government, it is our job to be a check on that kind of undemocratic, unstable rhetoric in this republic. Donald Trump's statements are outrageous, and this committee and every member that serves on it should be outraged by them. And every American should be outraged at this committee by not having hearings on that. Today we're tuning into a hearing hosted by the House Judiciary Committee on the weaponization of the federal government. The hearing takes place one year after the first Twitter files report came out. Those reports expose the federal government's influence over social media companies. Key witnesses include Twitter files journalists Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger. Let's tune in. Mr. Matt Taibbi is a journalist and author. He is one of the authors of the Twitter files, previously worked uh, for Rolling Stone. He also has written several books about American politics and culture. He won the Izzy Award for Independent Journalism in 2020 and the Dow Prize for, uh, from the National Journalism Center for his work on the Twitter files. Appreciate you being here today, Mr. Ty. Mr. Michael Schellenberger is also a journalist, author, and one of the authors of the Twitter files. He has co-founded several nonprofits, including the Breakthrough uh, Institute, Environmental Progress, and the California Peace Coalition. His work often focuses on crime and drug policy, homelessness, and the climate. 
Mr. Schellenberger has also won uh, the, the Dow Prize and was named a Hero of the Environment by Time Magazine in 2008. We welcome uh, Mr. Schellenberger as well. Ms. Rupa Subramanya, pretty close, I think. Uh, uh, Ms. Subramanya is a journalist for the Free Press. She is based in Canada and has lived or worked in India, the Middle East, Europe, and Asia. Her work has previously appeared in the Wall Street Journal and Foreign Policy, and she has been cited in the Financial Times and the New York Times. And we welcome you as well. Ms. Olivia Troy, who the ranking member just mentioned uh, and talked about, is a former national security official having served at the Department of Homeland Security in the intelligence community and at the Department of Defense. She served as Homeland Security uh, and Counterterrorism Advisor to Vice President Mike Pence, and we welcome you as well. We will now uh, begin by swearing you in. Would you all please stand, raise your right hand. Do you swear or affirm under penalty of perjury that the testimony you're about to give is true and correct to the best of your knowledge, information, and belief, so help you God? Let the record show that each of the witnesses has answered in the uh, affirmative. You can be seated, thank you. Um, please know that your written testimony will be entered into the record in its entirety. Accordingly, we ask that you summarize your testimony uh, in five minutes, give or take. We're, 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 we'll be a little lenient, of course. Uh, the microphone in front of you has a clock and a series of lights, and you know how this works, red, green, yellow. It gets to yellow, start winding it down, gets to red, then you've got a few extra, little extra time, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll stop. But we'll, we'll, we'll be lenient with that. Uh, let's, uh, let's start with uh, Mr. Schellenberger. Let's, well, let's, let, yeah, let's start with Mr. Schellenberger. We'll work, work right down the, the line. So, uh, Mr. Schellenberger, you're rest, re recognized for five minutes. Thank you very much, Chairman Jordan, Ranking Member Plaskett, and members of the subcommittee, thank you for inviting my testimony. Nine months ago, I testified and provided evidence to the subcommittee about the existence of a censorship industrial complex, a network of government agencies, including the Department of Homeland Security, government contractors, and big tech media platforms that conspired to censor ordinary Americans and elected officials alike for holding disfavored views. I regret to inform the subcommittee today that the scope, power, and lawbreaking of the censorship industrial complex are even worse than we had realized back in March. Two days ago, my colleagues and I published the first batch of internal files from the Cyber Threat Intelligence League, which show US and UK military contractors working in 2019 and 2020 to both censor and turn sophisticated psychological operations and disinformation tactics developed abroad against the American people. Many insist that all that we identified in the Twitter files, the Facebook files, and the CTI files were legal activities by social media platforms to take down content that violated the terms of service. Facebook, X, formerly Twitter, and other big tech companies are privately owned, people point out, and free to censor content. And government officials are free to point out wrong information, they argue. But the First Amendment prohibits the government from abridging freedom of speech the Supreme Court has ruled that the government may not induce, encourage, or promote private persons to accomplish what is constitutionally forbidden to accomplish, and there's now a large body of evidence proving that the government did precisely that. What's more, the whistleblower who delivered the CTIL files to us says that its leader, a quote-unquote former British intelligence analyst, was quote-unquote in the room at the Obama White House in 2017 when she received the instructions to create a counter-disinformation project to quote, stop a repeat of 2016. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Information Security Agency, CISA, has been, at the center, been the center of gravity for much of the censorship, with the National Science Foundation financing the development of censorship and disinformation tools and other federal government agencies playing a supportive role. 
Emails from CISA's NGO and social media partners show that CISA created the Election Integrity Partnership, EIP, in 2020, which involved the Stanford Internet Observatory and other U.S. government contractors. EIP and its successor, the Virality Project, urged Twitter, Facebook, and other platforms to censor social media posts by ordinary citizens and elected officials alike. EIP reported that they had a 75% response rate from the platforms and that 35% of the URLs that they reported were either removed, labeled, um, or throttled, or soft blocked. In 2020, the Department of Homeland Security, CISA, violated the First Amendment and interfered in the election, while in 2021, CISA and the White House violated the First Amendment and undermined America's response to the COVID pandemic by demanding that Facebook and Twitter censor content that Facebook said, that Facebook itself said was quote unquote often true, including about vaccine side effects. All of this is profoundly un-American. One's commitment to free speech means nothing if it does not extend to your political enemies. In his essential new book, Liar in a Crowded Theater, Jeff Kosef, a law professor at the United States Naval Academy, shows that the widespread view that the government can censor false speech and or speech that quote unquote causes harm is mostly wrong. The Supreme Court has allowed very few constraints on speech. For example, the test of incitement to violence remains its immediacy. I encourage Congress to defund and dismantle the government organizations involved in censorship. That includes phasing out all funding for the National Science Foundation's Track F, Trust and Authenticity in Communication Systems, and its Secure and Trustworthy Cyberspace Track. I would also encourage Congress to abolish CISA in DHS. Short of taking those steps, I would encourage significant guardrails and oversight to prevent such censorship from happening again. In particular, it's very easy to see the line in CISA. They say they're covering physical security, cybersecurity, but they added a third one, cognitive security, which is basically attempting to control the information environment and how people think about the world, including the stories that they tell. Finally, I would encourage Congress to consider making Section 230 liability protections contingent upon social media platforms known in the law as interactive computer services to allow adult users to moderate our own legal content through filters that we choose and whose algorithms are transparent to all of us. I would encourage Congress to prohibit government officials from asking the platforms to remove content which the Supreme Court may or may not rule on constitutional next year when it decides on the Missouri v. Biden case should the court somehow decide that the government requests for censorship are constitutional, then I would urge Congress to require such requests be reported publicly, instantaneously, so that such censorship demands occur in plain sight. Thank you very much for hearing my testimony. Mr. Taibbi, you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Jordan, Ranking Member Plaskett, and members of the committee uh, for giving us the opportunity to speak today. Exactly one year ago today, um, I had my first look at the documents that came to be known as the Twitter files. We've learned a lot since then. When Michael and I testified before uh, the good people of this committee in March, we both talked about how this isn't a partisan issue at all, uh, despite the fact that it's been uh, repeatedly described as a right-wing conspiracy theory or, or a right-wing fantasy. Uh, we found evidence of suppression of movements on both sides, uh, including leftist movements like the Yellow Vests, uh, parties like the Green Party, organizations like Consortium Magazine. Just this week, Michael and I reported on the group um, that he talked about, 
the CTI League. And in those documents, we found evidence of monitoring uh, groups like the Democratic Socialists of America, hashtags like healthcare for all. The nature of censorship programs is that they tend to expand in all directions. And these uh, programs already have. As someone who voted for Democrats his whole life and whom got his ideas about speech issues from people like Senator Frank Church, Paul Wellstone, and Dennis Kucinich, I believe also that there's a less obvious but more important reason that people across the spectrum should care about this issue. And the former executive director of the ACLU, Ira Glasser, once explained to a group of students why he didn't support hate speech codes on campuses. The problem, he said, wasn't the speech. The, the, the problem was, quote, who gets to decide what's hateful? Who gets to decide what to ban? Because, quote, most of the time, it ain't you. <laughs> the story that came out in the Twitter files, and for which more evidence surfaced in both the Missouri v. Biden lawsuit and this committee's Facebook files releases and in the CTI League documents, they all speak directly uh, to Ira Glasser's concerns. There's been a dramatic shift in attitudes about speech in this country, and many politicians now clearly believe the bulk of Americans can't be trusted to digest information on their own. This mindset imagines that if we see one clip from RT, we'll stop being patriots, that once exposed to hate speech, we'll become bigots ourselves automatically, that if we read even one Donald Trump tweet, we'll become insurrectionists. Having come to this conclusion, the government agencies like the DHS and the FBI and the quasi-private agencies uh, who do anti-disinformation work have taken upon themselves the paternalistic responsibility to sort out for us what is and is not safe. While they see great danger in allowing others to read controversial material, it's taken for granted that they themselves will be immune to the dangers of speech. This leads to the one inescapable question about these new anti-disinformation programs that is never discussed, but needs to be. We're tuning in to a hearing hosted by the House Judiciary Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. The hearing takes place one year after the first Twitter Files report came out. Those reports expose the federal government's influence over social media companies. Key witnesses include Twitter Files journalists Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger. Now back to the hearing. Ms. Subramanya, you are well, uh, recognized now for uh, five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Jordan. I'm pleased to be able to join you today to testify on the importance of free expression. I'd like all of you to think of me as a time traveler from the not-too-distant future, coming back to the present to offer you a glimpse of what could lie ahead for America. I live in a time in which, in the name of fairness, you can't share the stories you write for my news publication on social media. I live in a time in which, in the name of the common good, you can be kicked out of your bank and online payment system simply for expressing the wrong political views. I live in a time in which, in the name of social justice, you can commit a serious crime but get a more lenient sentence if you happen to be the right skin color. I live in a time in which, in the name of safety, you can be arrested for exercising your right to peaceful protest if you happen to be protesting the wrong thing. Of course, I'm not a real-time traveler. I just live in Canada. <clears throat> Americans, and perhaps those in this chamber, surely think Canadians are too nice, we're too polite to embrace this sort of proto-authoritarianism. But it's more accurate to say that our niceness made us susceptible to the new authoritarianism, undermining the foundations of our liberal democracy. If it sounds like I'm overstating things, allow me to share three stories that illustrate this creeping authoritarianism. 
First, a few months ago, I reported a story from my publication, The Free Press, about a high school principal in Toronto who had been humiliated in front of his colleagues by a DEI consultant. The principal's crime, besides being white and male, was that he objected to the consultant's assertion that Canada is a less just society than America. The humiliation he experienced ultimately led him to commit suicide. I wanted to share that story on Facebook. When I tried to, I was barred from posting it. I received a message that stated, in response to Canadian government legislation, news content can't be shared. I was confused. Then I remembered the recently adopted Online News Act. The law forces social media companies to pay online media companies to link to their content. Facebook, instead of paying for that content, barred its users from posting it. Government officials insist that this is only a matter of fairness, a way of making sure that media companies are compensated for the news they report. But really, this new law props up legacy media dinosaurs like the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, Bell Media, and other companies, which are subsidized by the federal government, and all of which can be counted on to echo Justin Trudeau's worldview and toe the party line. Not being able to post was annoying, but it wasn't the end of the world for me. I don't depend on Facebook for my income. The same cannot be said of Christopher Curtis, which brings me to my second story. Chris is a 38-year-old renegade journalist, entrepreneur in Montreal who runs a digital newsletter called The Rover. He calls himself woke. You might think that he's exactly the kind of journalist the Trudeau government would elevate. He's on the political left. He publishes stories about the plight of the homeless and police brutality. The problem is that, unlike government-funded news companies, independent media companies are truly independent, which means they report stories that don't comport with whatever the government wants them to report. For example, in September 2020, the rover reported a story on federal mistreatment of Mohawk Indians. This month, it published a story about migrant workers who had been abused and trafficked with the unwitting help of the federal government. But under this new law, the rover can't build its audience. Unable to post content on Facebook or Instagram, the newsletter can't reach new, new subscribers. It cannot grow its subscriber base. This is a slow death, says Chris. For now, he's unsure how he's going to support his partner and their three-year-old daughter. He's thinking of going back into construction. Which takes me to my third story. Danny Bulford, now 41, used to be an officer in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the equivalent of the FBI. For years, he was a sniper in the Prime Minister's protective detail. Then, in 2021, Danny quit because he didn't want to get his COVID vaccination. In early 2022, truckers descended on Ottawa to protest new COVID vaccine requirements. Danny joined them. The government declared a state of emergency. Danny, like many demonstrators, was arrested and later released without charge. Then something chilling happened. On February 17, 2022, Danny logs into his bank accounts, starting with his checking and savings accounts at the CIBC. But instead of seeing his balance, he had about $160,000 in there. The only thing he saw was a dash. Then he logs onto Scotiabank to see about an additional checking account. Once again, there was no sign of any money in his account. Finally, he logs into the Royal Bank of Canada, which handles his MasterCard account, and he was told he had no access to any credit. Danny's wife was also unable to access any of these accounts. Suddenly, they were worrying about how to cover their next mortgage payments and how to feed their three kids. That is what it means to be debanked. Debanking has been one of the Trudeau government's weapon of choice. Since 2018, it has frozen the accounts of more than 800 Canadians who did things it didn't approve of, including those of 280 who took part in the truckers' protest, which the government regarded as illegitimate. 
Soon after, Danny moved his money out of the big banks and into local credit unions, hoping it would be safer there. The worst part of this, Danny told me, is not believing in the country I spent my career serving. It's this feeling that we're being watched, torn apart, made to feel like the much-hated other in our own country. Canada was once a bastion of free expression, but now not so much. Consider that at the same time the government and its corporate allies are curbing the free expression of truckers and journalists, the government is defending the rights of pro-Palestinian demonstrators, many of whom traffic in what can only be called anti-Semitism. Think about that. Vaccine skepticism, not okay. Pe peddling medieval blood libel legends about Jews, okay. I'm all for protecting free speech. I'm from the free press. I just want that protection applied fairly. I also want to be clear, these are just a handful of hundreds of stories I could have picked. What is happening in Canada is a gradual suffocation of free expression. It is draped in a cloak of niceness, inclusivity and justice, but it is regressive, authoritarian and illiberal. I came here today not simply to warn you about what lies ahead, but to plead with you to do something about it. Now is not the time to be polite. Now is the time to defend loudly the liberties and rights that have given us the greatest freedoms in human history. Across the world right now, governments in the name of the good are considering or adopting measures like we have in Canada. Look at Dublin. They're about to enact a draconian hate crime, hate crime bill that poses a dire threat to free speech. In, in Paris, President Emmanuel Macron has called for censoring online speech. This is to say nothing of Russia, China, and Iran. America is so exceptional, indispensable, really. Please do not succumb to the same illiberalism, authoritarianism. Please keep fighting for what you know is right. Canada is watching. The world is watching. Thank you. Well said. Thank you. Very well said. Ms. Troy, you're recognized for five minutes. And we'll give you a little extra if you need it. Chairman Jordan, Ranking Member Plaskett, and members of the committee. Thank you for the opportunity to testify today. The threat of weaponization of the federal government is a serious topic that requires sober analysis. Unfortunately, what we see here today and what we have seen from this committee over the past year is instead a politically motivated fantasy detached from reality. Members of this committee and their witnesses make grand and vague accusations about government censorship but those foggy allegations are refuted by the facts that private social media companies moderating content on their own, private platforms, is not government censorship. It is those private companies exercising their own First Amendment rights to rid their platforms of misinformation. In my experience as a national security official, the federal government strictly adhered to the First Amendment by advising and assisting social media platforms in combating misinformation while the ultimate decision about what action, if any, to take rested solely with the platforms themselves. I know what real weaponization of the federal government looks like because I've seen it with my own eyes. I worked in the Trump White House, where I served as Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor to Vice President Mike Pence. On numerous occasions, I witnessed President Trump and his allies attempt to use the powers of the presidency to further his private political agenda at the expense of the American people. Trump administration officials attempt attempted to manipulate intelligence assessments to support its ban on nationals from Muslim countries entering the United States. They delayed natural disaster aid to blue states who had not supported President Trump's election. In the early days of the pandemic, they resisted sending federal assistance to New York as thousands of innocent Americans suffered. Instead of continuing to spread conspiracy theories about government censorship, 
This committee should instead focus on the very real and very dangerous threat posed by the leading Republican candidate openly threatening to use every lever of presidential power against his political opponents if he returns to the White House. Former President Trump has promised, quote, retribution against those who have wronged and betrayed him and his political movement. He has pledged to, quote, root out the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country. Trump has called the press the enemy of the people and has vowed to, quote, come down hard on MSNBC and make them pay, quote, for its critical coverage of him. He has promised to, quote, arrest his political opponents, saying he would have no choice, lock them up. He has said that his own chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff committed treason and that, quote, in times gone by, the punishment would have been death. Most ominously, he has called for the termination of all rules, regulations, and articles, even those found in the Constitution, his words. As a lifelong Republican, I have dedicated my entire career to protecting Americans from terrorist attacks, regardless of their partisan affiliation. Former President Trump's menacing promise to wield the powers of government as a weapon against his political adversaries poses a grave threat to the rule of law in the United States of America. The American people deserve that their representatives in Congress see that threat and speak to it honestly, instead of the political theater we see here today. I welcome the committee's questions. We're watching a hearing hosted by the House Judiciary Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. The hearing takes place one year after the first Twitter Files report came out. Those reports exposed the federal government's influence over social media companies. Key witnesses include Twitter Files journalists Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger. Let's get back to it. We will now go to the uh, five-minute questions from the members. We will start with the gentleman from uh, California, Mr. Issa. You're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, and I want to note the appearance of President Trump uh, by the ranking member and uh, by one witness. Today is not about President Trump. The actions that occurred during his administration are available for everyone to look at. Our witnesses today are asking and answering effectively questions about uh, the, <clears throat> the effects of suppression of free speech. <clears throat> and. Uh, as a, uh, of a, as a father of a, uh, a Canadian daughter-in-law, uh, I want to thank you for making people understand that that well-liked, nice country to our north can also make the kinds of mistakes that we seem to be making. So one of the questions that, that I have is, two of you have been here before, and I think it's important to ask, you mentioned some of the current activities as you continue to monitor it, and you particularly mentioned the, uh, the protest and the activities related to Israel's uh, attempt to get back its hostages. Can you elaborate on some of the specifics uh, that you think you see here in the way of either suppression or amplification? Um, is, there, is there any evidence that we're continuing to see, if you will, a bias that social media doesn't have a problem reporting one side, but does have a problem reporting the other side? Um, I know it's a tough question. Yeah. 
I mean, we've certainly, I mean, I think we've all seen calls for, I mean, I think to Matt's point that this is not a partisan issue, that we should all, that the test of your commitment to free speech is that you would like to see the, the speech that you really despise protected and that you would defend it. And I think we've seen calls for censoring pro-Palestine, pro-Hamas speech and have been disturbed by that and, and Rupa has described that and we've also seen uh, calls for censorship of the other side. We've seen misinformation spread on all sides. So I think that what you're hearing from us is a, is a general call that, that everybody needs to just calm down and remember that this country's greatness is really founded on that protection for that kind of, that protection of speech that we all might consider to be hateful. I always remind people that, you know, one of the, the most, some of the most important uh, court decisions by the Supreme Court were protecting the speech of neo-Nazis in the Brandenburg decision, in the decision by, in Skogie, if we can tolerate neo-Nazis marching through neighborhoods of Holocaust survivors, certainly I think we're capable of tolerating uh, people defending uh, violent attacks. And that brings us to a question. As we bring you back here and some new witnesses, uh, do we have a challenge in America that we're constantly looking at what should be censured, censored rather than how do we get more free speech so that the counter uh, opinions are heard as loudly as those who yell uh, and are heard the first time. Well, first of all, thank you for the question. Um, I think it's important to remember that the First Amendment not only guarantees um, people the right to speak and voice their opinions, but it also guarantees um, the right of all of us to hear those opinions. Uh, that, that's a crucial element of the promise. So, uh, so that, that goes to a follow-up. If that's the case, your suggestion about uh, a, a instantaneous and transparent uh, uh, unveiling of any and all reduction, throttling, et cetera, let's assume for a moment it's technically possible quickly. I, I, it's certainly possible, but let's just say it was technically possible quickly. We're a legislative body. Do you believe it's appropriate for us in a transparency act to mandate that this happen so that we no longer have the kind of things that happened to the chairman where he simply was systematically throttled so that he wasn't censured, censored, he simply wasn't heard very loudly. Uh, if we had had that, do you believe that it would have changed the outcome and should Congress look at mandating it? I can say something about that. Yeah, sure. yeah I mean, I strongly support transparency. You know, if you require, for example, that government uh, officials or people supported by the government, such as this EIP or VP group. And by the way, just to give you some quotes. Well, you mean what the ranking member described as legitimate uh, you know, suggestions and it was independent. Right. Isn't that always the defense, though, is that we didn't make the decision and the other guy didn't make the decision, it just happened? Right. I I'm down to just a few seconds, and I do want to thank our Canadian for uh, pointing out that we are about one step away from defunding here in the United States bank accounts. This administration has returned, so you understand, in the United States to making sure that people selling products or involved in activities that they don't want fail to have access. And that is another form of censorship that I'm sorry it's gone so far in Canada, but trust me, it's underway in this country. Mr. Chairman, I thank you, and, and I thank both of you. Sorry to cut you off. I yield back. Gentleman from Massachusetts, recognized for five. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. 
Mr. Chairman, there's a term in behavioral science uh, called the weaponization of incompetence. That is, uh, it refers to the tactic of employing deliberate or feigned ineptitude or stupidity in order to avoid an unwanted task or responsibility. And, and I dare say that is what the Republican leadership is involved in this committee. Uh, this is the last, the last hearing, even though this committee was, this subcommittee was launched with great fanfare, uh, we have not had a hearing in this, this subcommittee, this select subcommittee since July, since July. And not only has so much time passed, but at today's hearing, we bring back the same two witnesses that we heard uh, back in July. Uh, actually, uh, Mr. Schellenberger mentioned nine months ago that he had been here. Uh, and, and so I'm just, I'm just cognizant of the fact that there, this is an investigation of the federal government, right? The federal government. That's who we're supposed to be investigating. We have 4.3 million federal employees. We have 2 million retirees, all of whom would be available to come here and testify about their experience for these allegations of weaponization of the federal government. And yet, we bring back the same two witnesses we had uh, many months ago, and we bring back, uh, by her own description, a time traveler from Canada. I, I love Canada, by the way. Uh, and if, if this was a hearing on the Canadian government, I would, <clears throat> I would have Canadians lined up out in the hallway ready to testify. But uh, the, only, the only witness here that actually experienced in, in the federal government and could testify to that is, is Ms. Troy, and I'm very thankful for her, her testimony. <clears throat> you know, I'm old enough to remember Republicans who knew what they were doing, and I miss them. I miss them. I'm old enough to remember a, a, a Republican president who stood up, stood up to Russian dictators, not suck up to Russian dictators. American presidents, Republicans who, who told Mr. Gorbachev, take down this wall, stood up for democracy, defended our democratic allies in Europe, didn't look for excuses that well, the money's not in the budget, so we can't, we can't defend Europe. And that's what I, I see here today. Ms. Troy, the, the effect of incompetence in government at extreme levels, is that not itself a, a threat to national security? Yes, it absolutely is. So in, in our government, we recently spent 22 days without a Speaker of the House due to infighting, and, and we went through multiple candidates. It was, it was like an episode of one of those reality shows. We had another candidate, another candidate, and the only reason the, the recent Speaker got elected is because he had the, 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 the distinct quality that no one really knew him, and so he was chosen as, as our next Speaker. And the litmus test was whether or not the next speaker was subservient enough and adherent enough to the former president uh, who runs the Republican Party out of Mar-a-Lago. But that's not all. 
In June, the House Republican leadership brought us to the verge of a catastrophic default on our national debt, one that leading economists warned would be a first in American history and undermine the full faith and credit of the United States government and lead to a global economic meltdown. So now we're, we're facing a war in Europe, a war in the Middle East. We're facing a looming shutdown again of the United States government. And we're dealing with the weaponization of the deep state, which seems pretty shallow at this point, with the, the paucity of, of witnesses that the Republican majority has, has produced. I hope at some point we get back to the business that, that America here, that sent us here to do. Uh, this is not it. Uh, this is, this is crazy conspiracy uh, theory that we're pursuing here, and we ought to get back to the business uh, that America demands us uh, by virtue of our oath of office, and I yield back. That's all of our coverage of today's hearing hosted by the House Judiciary Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. The ceasefire between Israel and Hamas extended by another day. This comes amid a fatal shooting by Hamas terrorists in Jerusalem. House Republicans bring the CDC's attention to the spike in pneumonia in China. What the new CDC director is promising to do. Representative George Santos could be kicked out of Congress. The House is expected to soon vote for the second time on whether or not to expel him. Tonight, red versus blue, conservative versus liberal. Governors Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom are set to debate. We bring you why two governors are debating each other. Homework zones set up inside China's pediatric hospitals. They're made for sick children to keep up with their studies while receiving treatment. Astronomers have discovered a rare solar system billions of years old. The six planets orbit in perfect harmony. Find out about the discovery. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. The truce between Israel and Hamas is set to end later today after being extended for a day. But in the meantime, Hamas terrorists opened fire at a bus stop in Jerusalem, killing three people. Up to 10 Israeli hostages are set to be released today as part of the extended ceasefire deal. Hamas has released two of them so far. In exchange, Israel will release 30 Palestinian prisoners today. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is back in the region meeting with both Israeli and Palestinian leaders. He said he hoped the truce could be extended further and efforts are underway. Earlier this morning, two gunmen opened fire at a bus stop in Jerusalem, killing three people and wounding 13 others. Hamas claimed responsibility. Following the deadly shooting, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu repeated his determination to eradicate Hamas. 
Tomorrow could be Representative George Santos's last day in Congress. The House is expected to vote on whether or not to expel him. The New York Republican faces charges of corruption and misusing campaign funds. Here's the congressman this morning. This is bullying. The, rep, the chair of the committee putting out a motion to expel, just introducing it and not calling its privilege, was designed to force me to resign. The reality of it is it's all theater. It's theater for the cameras, it's theater for the microphones, it's theater for the American people, at the expense of the American people. The motion to expel Santos requires two-thirds majority in the House. Santos has pleaded not guilty to federal charges of laundering campaign money for personal expenses. He's also accused of charging donor credit cards without permission. Santos says he won't run for re-election in 2024, but he's refused to resign. One vote to expel Santos already failed on November 1st, but it's unclear whether he can survive the second attempt. About 180 Republicans voted against expulsion the first time, but a number have said that they won't support the congressman a second time. Can Americans still trust public health officials in the upcoming winter flu season? CDC Director Dr. Mandy Cohen is testifying before a House Commerce Subcommittee on how she can restore public trust. With the current surge in respiratory disease in China, this subcommittee sent a letter to you just yesterday, so we don't expect an answer yet, but just yesterday regarding this mysterious uptick in cases. Mm -hmm. uh, our hope is, is that, you know, and if you need us to help, we will, but we are hoping that you can put some pressure in an attempt to, to try to get China to not mislead the world as they did with COVID-19. Um, what steps is, or is your agency taking, is CDC taking, to ensure that you can gather all the complete and accurate data uh, regarding this mysterious uptick in respiratory illnesses in China? Well, thank you, Chairman. Um, on that, obviously, it is really important that CDC continues to do our global work and do this scientific diplomacy. Um, what we know as of right now today of what's happening in China, they are having an increase in some of their respiratory illness. They're seeing it in the northern part of their country. They're seeing an uptick in their pediatric population. What we do know as of, again, as of today, is we do not believe this is a new or novel pathogen. We believe this is all existing, meaning COVID, flu, RSV, mycoplasma, um, and the, but they are seeing an upsurgence. Um, you know, we do have an office, CDC does, in China, um, and our um, officials have been uh, in touch with our counterparts to make sure that we're understanding the situation there. Um, that, you know, they were sharing back with us again, not a novel pathogen. And you'll, you'll keep us informed. We will. I appreciate that. Thank you. This is Cohen's first testimony in Congress since she assumed the job in July. Top Republicans on the committee have criticized the CDC for a lack of transparency during the COVID-19 pandemic. They said in the latest statement, the CDC's public trust has been damaged as a result of its confusing messaging and other failures during the COVID-19 pandemic. The House GOP budget bill plans to cut $1.6 billion for the CDC. Two governors with very different policies facing off on national TV. Florida's Ron DeSantis is set to debate California's Gavin Newsom tonight. Both of them have hopes to one day become the commander-in-chief of the United States. Fox News is calling the event the Great Red versus Blue State Debate. It's set to take place tonight in Georgia, an important swing state. 
There will be no audience, and the moderator is Sean Hannity. Newsom has talked about eventually running for president in the future. However, for now, he's backing President Biden's re-election bid. DeSantis, meanwhile, could use a strong showing before a national audience. That's to build momentum before the Iowa caucuses. He's still trailing far behind former President Trump in the polls. In other election-related news, Republican candidate Nikki Haley is launching her first TV ad. Politico reports that the 30-second video is titled Chaos on Our Streets. In the video, Haley says the U.S. needs a president with moral clarity. The TV clip is part of her $10 million ad buy in Iowa and New Hampshire. Former President Trump is skipping the fourth GOP primary presidential debate next week in Alabama. The move comes as no surprise since Trump passed on attending the previous three as well. Trump will instead attend a MAGA fundraiser in Florida on December 6th, while four primary opponents take to the debate stage. The debate will take place at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa on December 6th. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie and Vivek Ramaswamy are expected to take part. New details emerging about the former president's business relations at the New York civil fraud trial. A former managing director of Deutsche Bank gave her testimony yesterday. She was one of the defense witnesses. She told the court that under direct orders from her superiors, she actively sought to expand Deutsche Bank's business relations with the Trump organization. She said her superiors repeatedly encouraged her to woo the Trump family and court their business, not the other way around. Her statements align with the general gist of Trump's testimony on the stand earlier this month. On the other hand, government prosecutors have sought to depict Trump as a real estate swindler who exaggerated the value of his assets in the hope of securing better terms for bank loans and insurance policies. The civil fraud trial is resuming today with Trump's team calling real estate expert Robert Unell as a witness. Former President Trump is back under gag order in the New York civil fraud case. He argued that the order was unconstitutional, but that was rejected today by a panel of judges. Earlier this month, a state judge paused the order. Now it's back due to threats received by the judge's law clerk after Trump criticized her on social media. Texas will continue busing illegal immigrants to blue cities. Governor Greg Abbott says the Lone Star State will keep sending immigrants to Democrat-led cities until President Biden secures the border. Abbott posted this picture on Instagram last night. It shows how Texas sent tens of thousands of immigrants to cities across the U.S. Abbott says doing so has provided vital relief to border towns. Texas has so far bussed almost 70,000 immigrants to so-called sanctuary cities. The mayors of those cities, meanwhile, say they're overwhelmed and asked Abbott to stop sending buses. New York City Mayor Eric Adams went as far as to say the immigration issue will destroy the city. Homeland Security agents are allegedly told to make sandwiches for illegal immigrants, drive them to doctor's appointments, and do similar tasks. They're being asked off their normal cases to... They're being taken off their normal cases to assist at the border. Well, whistleblowers told Senator Josh Hawley about the tasks they're doing. Now, a Homeland Security official partially confirms those reports. Have any FPS officers, to your knowledge, been reassigned to the southern border to help with migrant processing? Uh, yes, sir. We, our officers, are transporting people to hospital appointments, to medical visits, to emergency rooms, 
uh, that may need to, for treatment. So the Border Patrol doesn't have to do that. One agent said that he was being asked to make sandwiches for illegal migrants. I mean, I have to say, I think it's kind of a problem when people aren't investigating child exploitation so that they can make sandwiches. Coming up, a congressman says the Chinese Communist Party could be interfering with the 2024 elections. What's the extent of the threat posed by the Chinese Communist regime? And the UAW is looking to launch a massive new initiative. We sit down with the host of NTD Business to get a closer look at the union's plans. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. An FBI agent carjacked in Washington, D.C. There's been a sharp increase in the number of carjackings in the nation's capital. Police say two armed people were behind this one yesterday. In the middle of the day, the car was found about 30 minutes later, about a mile away. The FBI and the police's carjacking task force are investigating. Carjackings in the nation's capital have more than doubled this year. Recent victims include a diplomat from the United Arab Emirates and Texas Congressman Henry Cuellar. Earlier this month, a Secret Service opened fire after three people tried to break into an unmarked vehicle. No one was struck. Violent crime in Washington up more than 40% compared to last year. And the annual Rockefeller Center Christmas tree lighting ceremony in New York City was met with a huge prote protest. Hundreds of pro-Palestine supporters swarmed the event yesterday. They clashed with police and chanted slogans like from the river to the sea. One protester had a sign with a swastika comparing the Israel Defense Forces to Nazis. Police arrested seven people, including six adults and one teenager, after an at least an hour-long rally outside the ceremony. The NYPD prevented protesters from making it to the tree. The group has been marching through the streets of the Big Apple over the last week. Police arrested 34 people last Thursday after protesters from a socialist group interrupted the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade to support Palestinians. And police in Rockland, Maine are looking for a clumsy thief who tried to steal cigarettes from a smoke shop. The man was caught on camera slipping and dropping cartons of cigarettes as he made his getaway. Police say they responded to a smash-and-grab burglary Tuesday night, but the crook left before they got there. According to police, the suspect's lack of coordination saved most of the product, but he did a significant amount of damage to the store. Officers are checking surveillance video to help them ID the thief. The chief executives of Meta, X, TikTok, Snap and Discord are set to testify on child sexual exploitation. The Senate Judiciary Committee hearing is scheduled for January 31st. Discord and X had initially refused the subpoena, according to the committee chairman. Lawmakers are expected to press the CEOs on their failures to protect children online. The committee has approved a number of bills this year to address child sexual exploitation online. One would remove tech firms' immunity from civil and criminal liability. Another would establish a national commission to protect children. TikTok could cause, quote, absolute chaos in the 2024 election. Those are the words of Congressman Mike Gallagher, chair of the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP. He called TikTok a public discourse tool of the CCP. We speak with CEO of Black Ops Partners, Casey Fleming, about Representative Gallagher's bold claims. Casey Fleming, how could the Chinese Communist Party use TikTok to influence the 2024 election? 
really the through our uh, younger population, those under 30 use TikTok as their primary source for information. So uh, basically managing the, the hearts and the minds of everybody under the age of 30 when we're coming into an election. So, you know, Osama bin Laden's letter to America um, justifying the 9-11 terror attack was went viral on TikTok, actually. What other kinds of election-altering content could spread on the app in the 2024 election cycle? Uh, the Osama bin Laden letter is a perfect example of the way the Chinese Communist Party uh, manipulates the minds of our younger people. And by putting that out on TikTok, you know, when you put something out on a social media platform, it's termed as accurate and it's it's real and it's valid. And so our younger people don't have the, uh, the, the ability to say, well, wait a minute, this doesn't sound right, or I've got my own values, which will override that. So it implants values into our younger population. So over time, those values are cemented in support of the CCP and their mission against the United States and the free world. So you can see what type of extreme havoc that is uh, and what we face with our elections and with our, our younger population on TikTok. Now talk to us more about how this um, sort of disinformation, like we're calling it, could affect the 2024 election. I mean, Microsoft published a report in September that showed China-based agents used AI to mimic voters and spread disinformation in um, 2022 midterm election cycle. Well, you have to understand that this is a magic weapon of the Chinese Communist Party. That's exactly what TikTok is. And I've said all along, it's a weaponized military application in the hands of our children. So over time, they're getting their news from TikTok. And so how could you not believe TikTok? You've got all these funny jokes. You've got all these things that these people, TikTok gets me um, when, you're, when you're under 30 years old, when you're a college kid or a high school kid. TikTok understands me, TikTok gets me. So when something's published on TikTok, then it's, it's golden, it's, you don't, you don't uh, um, question that. In fact, you do question your, your, your US government, your parents, and the structure that's there today. Now, how crucial is the outcome of the next U.S. election for the Chinese Communist Party? What's riding on it for them? The Chinese Communist Party has had uh, beautiful um, success through our, our recent elections. Uh, our, our administration today pretty much facilitates the CCP's mission and strategy, and they want to keep that going. Putting somebody else in the office that will put the brakes on that is something the CCP does not want to have happen. The CCP is in, in process, and their strategy is total domination and total control. Congressman Mike Gallagher, the chair of the House Select Committee on the CCP, said the issue is, far, is, is, is foreign adversary control of social media and technology companies in America. Given that, what needs to be done here? Well, that, what, you, what you just described is a national security issue. And under national security, I would ban TikTok and any other Chinese application because in China, all applications are driven and controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. I've also said all along that any type of technology uh, has a good side, but every type of technology can be weaponized and have a bad side. So I would absolutely say job number one is to ban TikTok because it's a, a weaponized military application. All right, Casey Fleming, thank you so much.
Thank you for having me. Joining us now is NTD Business host Don Ma to discuss the United Auto Workers Union launching a first-of-its-kind initiative. Now, it announced yesterday that it wants to push publicly, to publicly organize the entire non-union auto sector in the U.S. Don, this is a very bold statement from the UAW. How are they going to do this? Well, uh, they're, they're targeting actually 13 automakers. Uh, that's including uh, ones like Tesla, uh, Honda, Toyota, um, foreign ones as well, BMW, Mercedes-Benz. So here's, here's their method, right? Um, first of all, UAW President Sean Fain, he sent out a video message yesterday, and in that message he urged uh, the non-union workers to join the UAW's membership drive campaign. Uh, and then he also urged those interested to sign these uh, electronic cards. Um, and these cards, uh, it, it sort of shows that uh, if you sign uh, that you're interested in, in, in their uh, campaign, um, if 30% of workers sign these, um, uh, these cards, the UAW will make that number public. Um, I guess is it's a display of how many people are interested and wanting to join. Now, if 50% uh, sign these cards, uh, then the UAW will hold a rally with Sean Fain touting the effort. And at 70%, it seems like the UAW would seek recognition or demand a union representation vote. Uh, so that's basically, I guess, their strategy. But it's, it seems a bit un unconventional uh, because they're targeting all 13 simultaneously. It's a bit surprising, but at the same time, it's not really surprising because uh, we've seen Sean Fain do uh, similar things when he's negotiating contracts with the Detroit Three, right? He uh, targeted all three at the same time with strikes. So how successful is it going to be trying to unionize every single automaker? Well, definitely, it's an uphill battle. Uh, the UAW has around uh, 150,000 members. Uh, at its peak, it had somewhere over a million. So it, it has been declining a little bit. Um, and at the same time, if you look at their track record, uh, they haven't always been successful, relatively speaking, at unionizing um, these automakers. Uh, if you just look recently, their attempts at uh, unionizing uh, the foreign-based companies in the U.S., uh, they've seen not so much success, uh, Volkswagen, for example. Uh, and when it comes to these automakers, like, for example, Tesla and Honda, the leaders here, uh, they seem less enthusiastic about it. Tesla CEO Elon Musk uh, has previously said that if Tesla did, in fact, unionize in the future, it would be a sign that Tesla has failed somehow. And if Tesla has failed, then uh, Elon Musk said that then they deserve to be unionized. And Honda uh, seems to be in a similar camp. Um, but, you know, it doesn't mean that they don't have any support. President Biden, of course, uh, very pro-union, has supported uh, his, uh, his initiative to try to unionize more automakers. And himself, Sean Fain, is optimistic as well, because he has previously said as well that uh, by 2028, uh, that's when the current contracts end, when they go back to the negotiating table, uh, he says maybe they'll be talking with uh, more than just three automakers. He's saying maybe they're going back to negotiation with the big five 
or big six, um, you know, so he has some confidence there. But if you ask me whether, you know, he, he's going to be successful with all 13, well, I, I personally don't think that is possible. But is he going to see some level of, of success? Um, in that sense, I think definitely. All right, Don, what else do you have for us? Yeah, sure. So Elon Musk actually cursed out the advertisers that left his social media platform X. And this is going extremely viral. He said it during a summit interview yesterday. He even singled out Disney CEO Bob Iger. And he's faced a lot of backlash since his response to an alleged anti-Semitic ex-post. Musk's comments have pressured the social media company, but he doesn't seem worried. Uh, he has repeatedly said that if the company fails because of an advertiser boycott, it will fail for no other reason than an advertiser boycott. And everybody on earth will know that. Um, but in other news, Ford Motor on Thursday put the cost of the labor deal with the United Auto Works Union at nearly $9 billion. And at the same time, Ford is also cutting its full year profit forecast. This is due to the loss of production from the lengthy strike at its U.S. plants. The automaker now expects adjusted earnings before interest and taxes to be around $1 billion lower than its previous forecast. And the deal with the UAW union will add about $900 in labor costs per vehicle by 2028. Ford says it's going to try to offset that cost, uh, that by cutting costs elsewhere, but we'll see. And OpenAI officially announced Sam Altman's return as CEO yesterday. This is, of course, 12 days after he was fired. The artificial intelligence company also said it created a new board and added and only one director from the board uh, that fired Altman remains. So the key stakeholder, Microsoft, also gained a non-voting seat on the new board. In a company blog post, Altman thanked the previous board for their contributions to the company. The chaos at OpenAI led the vast majority of its 800 employees to threaten to quit unless Altman and the company's former chairman were, uh, were reinstated. All right. Thank you, Don. Thank you. An airplane is stuck on a reef in Hawaii. The Navy released a video of the tires resting on coral. The large aircraft has been stuck in the bay for more than a week. Nine people were on board when the plane landed in shallow water just offshore from Marine Corps Base Hawaii. The base is about 10 miles from Honolulu. The Navy is investigating what caused the plane to overshoot a runway in late November. No injuries were reported. The video shows tires and the left engine on the coral as tiny fish swim through crevices. A Navy team removed nearly all of the estimated 2,000 gallons of fuel on the plane. State environmental officials expect to conduct a damage assessment once the plane is removed. Coming up, U.S. agricultural exports to China down over the past year. The Secretary of Agriculture is urging exporters to consider other markets. And European leaders accuse Russia of trying to destroy a European organization that works for peace. Find out how they're planning to respond when we return. With global health concerns circulating, here's a glimpse at how China is battling the outbreak. Chinese children with IV drips in one arm and doing homework with the other. The bizarre scene is becoming a common one nationwide. The mysterious pneumonia is presenting a new problem for school-aged kids. 
balancing their medical treatment schedule and education. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has the report. To help, hospitals across China have set up homework zones. Take a look at this picture. It looks like a school, but it's actually a health clinic in Wuhan. Full of desks and chairs, kids fill up the hall to study. In the major port city Nanjing, this children's hospital also assembled a homework zone. China's capital Beijing and major business hub Tianjin are facing similar challenges. Hundreds and thousands of sick children there are also waiting for treatment and studying while they wait. The health-to-homework crossover has caught social media attention outside China as well. One related post on X, formerly Twitter, already has nearly one and a half million views. But many of the comments aren't so supportive, often criticizing the parents and healthcare workers involved. One reads, quote, terrible idea. Sick kids should be resting, not studying. At the same time, other posts say tragedy has already struck, reporting that a 15-year-old student jumped off a building, burdened with the stress of both school and sickness. At the same time, Chinese parents are complaining about pressure from China's education system, saying they have little choice but to push their kids. In response, Beijing authorities said six students are not advised to study while recovering. As the rate of respiratory illnesses among children in China soars, a protest movement spurred by the lockdowns and intensified repression by the Chinese Communist Party during the COVID pandemic marks one year since its inception. The white paper movement saw protesters in China and abroad holding up white pieces of paper in dissent against the party's censorship. It has since broadened to include dissent against the party itself. Earlier, I had the privilege to speak with Zhou Feng Suo, a human rights activist and a student leader during the Tiananmen Square protests of 1989. He spoke at the White Paper Movement's anniversary event outside the capital yesterday, and he joined us from his office at the Tiananmen Museum today. Zhuo Feng Suo, in your speech yesterday at the Capitol, you spoke about the white paper pro-freedom movement in China. Could you elaborate on its core objectives and its significance at this time? The core objective of the white paper movement in one word is about freedom. Why is significant? Because it's the first time in China's history under CCP that Chinese people chanted down with CCP. And it was uh, reverberated all over China. And it's the first time that CCP was forced to change its public policy due to protest. Yeah, it's been one year since this movement began. What reflections do you have more about the significance of the progress that it's made so far? What's most important is that the pandemic showed the world that uh, CCP is a threat to the world. China without freedom is not only a problem for Chinese people, it's a problem for the world. And the core of the problem is there's, when there's no freedom, there's no way to see the truth. For example, when the pandemic is spreading because there's no freedom, the whole world suffers because CCP kept the news a secret. And have you seen any shift in public sentiment within China or externally about the, the need for freedom within China? I think for most people now, they just have to accept because public protest is so hard 
But once in a while, we can see, for example, a glimpse of it. Most recently, at the Halloween display in Shanghai, you know, the, the same place that last year uh, started the most uh, uh, important protest. People there expressed in all kinds of opinions, very creative. Actually, one of the people at the Halloween was arrested. She was also a protester last year. Right. So you mentioned the, the persecution of activists is still ongoing. What other challenges persist in the fight for human rights within China? It's uh, the U.S.'s tendency to appease to such a regime. For example, the most recent attack in APAC meetings in San Francisco Bay Area, there were definitely well-observed, organized group attacks by CCP-mobilized groups. But San Francisco police so far has made no arrest. Instead, they made arrest against a leading protester. What kind of message United States is trying to send? This is like going back to the old norm of appeasing a totalitarian regime at the expense of human rights. And how important is international support for freedom within China, would you say? What White Paper showed the world is that external activities means a lot to China. And the virtual space that there is a free opinion, especially for Chinese, in Chinese, it's very important. That's what made the last year's movement successful. And that's where the international community can help a lot, help could the dissident community. Could you describe in, some of the actions that you saw internationally in this movement or in support of this movement? You mean from uh, um, other than Chinese? Outside of China, did you see a Chinese oh, yes, yes, or? Yeah, the Chinese diaspora community, especially the young students, they were the core force during the movement, even though the protest culminated in China. For, but for most part, it was shared, carried the, the message by the Chinese students abroad, in, in London, in Berlin, in uh, Sydney, in Toronto in Los Angeles, in New York City. That's how the Chinese people was able to form a consensus at the end of this period. And despite the struggles that it still faces, is there anything that's giving you hope within this movement at this time? Even given all the uh, persecutions in which people in prison and many of the parents being um, interrogated by police, I have met so many young Chinese students who are still uh, fighting uh, despite uh, all the risks. I mean, the awakening of the younger generation, that's the most promising we have seen so far. Great. Thank you so much. Zhuo Fengshuo, really great to speak with you. Thank you. Staying in the Asia-Pacific region, we have more short headlines from Japan, Taiwan and elsewhere. Japan is taking action following the fatal U.S. military aircraft crash in its territory yesterday. Japan is asking the U.S. to suspend all non-emergency V-22 Osprey flights in the country. Japan has su suspended its own Osprey flights. 
At least one crew member was killed when a U.S. Air Force Osprey plane crashed off the coast of western Japan. Search and rescue efforts are ongoing for the other seven crew members. The U.S. ambassador to Japan addressed the crash when he met with Japan's foreign minister today. The fact that you have both the Coast Guard, all three branches of the self-defense forces, but also local fishermen out in the waters searching for U.S. servicemen says that we are not just treaty allies, but we are friends, and we have a good friend in Japan. Are Taiwan's leaders concerned about a possible invasion by the Chinese Communist regime in the near future? In an interview with the New York Times, Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen said China is too overwhelmed to consider an invasion. She said that Chinese leadership is currently dealing with internal challenges, and so she doesn't think they're planning a major invasion of Taiwan right now. She pointed to China's internal economic, financial and political challenges, and also the international pressure that Beijing faces. The U.S. isn't exporting as much agricultural product to China as it used to. Trade data shows U.S. exports to China dropped nearly 20 percent compared to last year. That's the slowest pace in three years. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack said China took advantage of lower prices for corn and soy from Brazil, but he expects U.S. exports to China to rise again over time. Oil seeds and grains are the top U.S. export to China, accounting for over $25 billion last year, far ahead of other goods such as semiconductors. In light of the drop in exports, Vilsack urged American exporters not to over-rely on the Chinese market. China has taken the opportunity, as they often do, to take advantage of low cost. Uh, now, I would uh, indicate that I think over time uh, we'll, we'll continue to see a writing and balancing of that. Uh, at the same time, I think it's important for the United States to take this opportunity uh, to understand the importance of diversifying its market opportunities away from an over-reliance on one or two markets. It's one of the reasons why when we set up a new trade... The U.S. is sanctioning Sinbad, a virtual currency mixer. The Treasury Department is accusing Sinbad of ties to North Korea. A virtual currency mixer is a software tool that pools and scrambles cryptocurrencies from thousands of addresses. The Treasury Department said Sinbad processed millions of dollars worth of virtual currency for heists carried out by North Korea-linked hackers, known as Lazarus Group. The sanction freezes any U.S. assets of Sinbad and generally bars Americans from dealing with it. A scene of chaos in Seoul today as about 200 people took to the streets to protest against the planned dog meat ban. Most of them are farmers who breed dogs for human consumption. Dozens of farmers drove trucks loaded with caged dogs. They tried to drive onto the street in front of the presidential office where they intended to release the dogs. Police turned them away and clashes broke out. Organizers said three protesters were detained by police during the chaos. South Korea has a population of about 51 million people, and more than 6 million households now have dogs as pets. The country's president and his wife own six dogs. And now, for a shift in gears, we have some short headlines from Germany, France, and other European countries. European leaders say the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, or OSCE, is now united in fighting Russia. This, as they allege Russia is trying to destroy the European organization. That the European Union and the OCE remain united in deploring Russia's aggressive, unlawful behavior.
By putting obstacles in the way, they have tried to dry out the OSCE financially. We have countered this with voluntary financial contributions and resources, including from Germany. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky visiting troops on the front line in the country's northeast. He announced the visit today after it was completed. Zelensky posted a video of himself visiting a command post alongside Ukrainian top generals in the area. The president thanked the troops for their sacrifices. Ukrainian troops in that area have been weathering Russian assaults over the last several months. That's as Moscow seeks to push back in the sector. Russia's military at the same time says it captured a village in a contested area of eastern Ukraine. Ukrainian officials offered no comment but said Russia's forces suffered heavy losses while launching attacks. Russian forces have been focusing on, eastern, on the eastern Donetsk region recently. That's after failing to advance on Kyiv. Ukraine regained large chunks of territory a year ago, but Ukraine's new counteroffensive, launched in June, has made only small gains in the east and south. Fighting online fraud, 11 of the world's biggest tech companies are set to sign an agreement with the British government today. That's to step up their efforts to tackle online fraud. Among the companies are Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, and others. They'll pledge to take further action to block and remove fraudulent content from their sites. French Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne wants her cabinet to stop using major messaging apps and instead use an app made in France. Bourne is raising concerns about WhatsApp, Signal, Telegram, and others. French officials use them to communicate with each other, journalists, and more. Bourne wants ministers to instead use Olvid, which is widely unknown. She cites security concerns in her request. A suspected terror attack in Germany by a kid. A 15-year-old boy has been accused of planning a possible attack on a Christmas market. Law enforcement detained the teenager on Tuesday during a search at his home. A security official said the suspect had written about attacks, attack plans in a chat group and that participants agreed on a concrete plan for the attack. Germany's domestic intelligence agency warns of radicalization of lone assailants who can use simple means to attack vulnerable targets. It's the biggest casualty so far of a European property crash. Real estate agent giant Cigna declared insolvency yesterday. It's the firm behind high-profile projects and department stores across Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. The company also runs Germany's top high street chain, Galleria. It's also the owner of New York's famous Chrysler building. Signa collapsed into insolvency after last-ditch attempts to find fresh funding failed. Creditor groups say its debts amount to about $5.5 billion. Now investors are worried the fallout could spread across Europe's embattled property sector. Austrian bank Raiffeisen, one of the firm's biggest lenders, has warned real estate prices could sink if Cigna starts selling assets. The sector's troubles come after the steepest rise in borrowing costs in the 25-year history of the euro. That has caused a deep slide in property prices in Germany, where much of Cigna's business is anchored. Analysts say its problems threaten to leave deep scars on the country's shopping streets. The crisis has also halted work on Germany's tallest building, a 64-storey skyscraper in Hamburg. Signa is majority controlled by Austrian magnate René Benko, while other rich individuals have minority stakes. Dozens of banks, including Switzerland's Julius Baer, 
have lent heavily to the firm. Coming up, a perfect planetary dance. Astronomers have discovered a, a rare solar system where the orbits sync up just right. The discovery could shed light on our own system. We'll return with that and more after this break. Welcome back. Astronomers have discovered a rare solar system. Billions of years old, the six planets orbit a nearby star in perfect harmony. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on what's out there. This rare cosmic wonder may help explain the origins of solar systems across the Milky Way galaxy. The compact in-sync system is 100 light-years away in the constellation Coma Berenices. Years away, that's uh, about 25 times further than the closest star system to us. If we wanted to travel to the closest star system using current technology, it would take about 70,000 years, so we're looking 25 times further away than that. The vast international research team describes the star system as a rare fossil, essentially unchanged from its birth more than 4 billion years ago. The reason why this planetary system is therefore interesting is that actually many planetary systems don't have these orbital resonances, despite the fact that they are somewhat stable. The six planets found so far are roughly two to three times the size of Earth. Their orbits range from nine to 54 days. Scientists say this solar system is unique because all six planets move like a perfectly synchronized symphony. So an orbital resonance is when two objects orbiting around something else have orbital periods that are a simple ratio of each other. So, for example, uh, if uh, one object goes around in one year and another object goes around in two years, then that is a two-to-one resonance. The effort culminated with the study appearing in the journal Nature in late November. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Have you ever wished you could mute someone's chewing? Then this is for you. Doritos is hoping to cancel noisy crunching using artificial intelligence. The world's first AI augmented snack, powered by crunch cancellation. Cancel crunch in real time. Doritos silent. Game on, crunch off. The technology was trained by recording more than 5,000 crunch sounds so that the software would be able to detect and mute it. It's available only for gamers now on Windows. It's intended for gamers playing with others so that the snacking doesn't interrupt the team's performance. But many may be hoping that it will eventually work on phone calls or even better yet, in person too. Here's a great gift for the beer lover in your family. Miller Lite is selling a beer cracker this holiday season. It looks like the classic nutcracker we all know and love, but instead of cracking nuts, it's cracking open beers. It has two beer openers, one in the mouth and another in the removable hat. And that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with any news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories tomorrow.